This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, and verses 25 to 35. First we'll read verses 6 to 9. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be a flame with passion. And now 25 to 35. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn, as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice, as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy, as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's Word. We are in a series called Seasons. We're taking a month to consider wisdom and the hope that God offers for various seasons of life. Today, it's I'm Single, uh, which is complex for various reasons, not the least of which singleness is different in your 20s and maybe you're still paying off student loans than it is in your 50s when your concerns are much more about how to maybe care for aging parents. They're just different times. So what we're going to do is let the Word of God chart our course this morning and let the chips fall where they may on this particular season. And let me just begin by giving you my qualifications for preaching from God's Word on singleness. Number one qualification is that occasionally Katie tells me I really ought to get my own bathroom. All right, so I'm, I apparently, in terms of, in terms of personal hygiene, I, am, I should be single. 
Uh, I have the gift of, <laughs> of personal hygiene celibacy. Uh, I've, ar- I've already heard this, in fact, that I should have my own bathroom within the first 72 hours of moving into our new home. It was deemed hers. Grateful for that. Other than that, I got very little. I was married in my uh, early 20s, straight after university, even informally, but certainly formally. I do more premarital and marital counseling than I do counseling with singles. Uh, I can't imagine my life unmarried. Can't even imagine it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if I was released into the wild, just you just threw me out there somewhere on some type of reality TV show, I would not last more than 72 hours. All right, maybe a week with one allowed Skype or FaceTime phone call to my wife. All right, I just wouldn't make it. I'd be going discouraged, down, and, you know, some type of jaguar would eat me. So I am not qualified in any of these ways to preach on this other than the bathroom thing, but that's pretty small, and the living, breathing word of God. Because you're not going to get love line advice for singles this morning from Dr. O, right, on, on KISS FM or anything like that. But we're going to be extracting marrow from the divinely breathed Word of God. And as He breathes words out, we can and will apply them to the whole of our lives. Because, man, from, from Monday to Friday, I was, I was bathing, showering, and rinsing, and repeating this, this passage, this text that we just read from. I was also compelled to be asking the people of God about the Word of God and how it applies to their life. I probably asked more intentional questions of singles than I maybe asked of any text I've ever preached in a given week. Just asking questions. What do you think about this? How do you interact with the Word of God and what it has to say to this, your season of life? Because here we have the major and really only teaching about singles in the Bible, except for a brief reference, a brief but relevant reference by Jesus to people who are voluntarily eunuchs. Similar. It's not for everyone, he says. Even here, even here, this teaching on singleness is in the context of the engaged, right, the betrothed, essentially, the married, and the sex, right? So, You know your season of life is complicated when the only Scripture about it has to weave through everything you are not. Right? Engagement, marriage, and the sex. Right? The sexual desire as well as its consummation. So I kind of feel, I feel for you singles. It's like, man, finally you spend a Sunday talking directly to us and it's also going to be in this like engagement, marriage, sex stuff. But we're going to weave through it. We're going to weave through it. And because you guys, every week, on Sundays you bear through it, and and during the week, just knowing me, you bear through all my stories about being married and having kids, you're going to get two weeks on singles. Two weeks. Because it's important that we take time out to get all aboard the singles train. All right? Choo-choo. Here we go. All right. So stop number one on the singles train is going to be grace for hard counsel. Stop number two is going to be single with benefits. And then next Sunday, I know it's in your bulletin differently, but next Sunday we're going to talk about when a spouse should be sought. And then finally how all of us ought to be single in some way. There's a singleness that should be about all of us. So first this morning, grace for hard counsel. This is actually one of Paul's most grace-saturated teachings. You're like, Ryan, I've read other stuff in Paul. There's so much more. Ephesians 2, 
all of Galatians. There's so much about grace. How would you say this is so grace-saturated? But I'm going I'm to help us try to see this through the context, the why of why Paul is writing, the who of why Paul is writing. The pneumatics are a major reason Paul writes this first letter to the Corinthians. Who are the pneumatics? Gordon Fee, one commentator, rightly, I think, assigns this label to a group of teachers who are kind of teaching this special extra thing along with trust in Jesus for salvation. It comes from pneuma, which is the Greek word for spirit, and addicts, which is just the ending to fanatics. Right, So you got people who are fanatical about the Spirit of God and experiencing it in their life. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, during which time he shared the good news about Jesus with the Corinthians. And many of them decided to do the one thing that's required for salvation, which is trust in Jesus. And he gives you this free gift of salvation. You receive the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to live with you on this earth and to be with the Godhead forever. And it's clear that the Corinthians experience a powerful working of the Holy Spirit in their lives and through their church. So within a couple years arises this new group of teachers who basically say two things. One, the experience and power of God are to be preferred to God himself. And there's a distinction there, however fine it might be, right? Knowing God in all his forms, however he chooses to give himself to us, to show himself to us, versus that experiencing the power of God and the goosebumps of God, right? The Holy Spirit goosebumps and the, 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 the miracles and all those, those big things of God. There's supposed to be a lust for the experience of God versus necessarily just content with a relationship with God, however he chooses to show himself. And that is to be preferred But these teachers come and say, no, 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 no. Seek the big, miraculous, fireworks, pyrotechnic experiences of God. That's where it is at. And they also teach that there are certain laws that unlock this pyrotechnic experience of God, this fuller access to the Holy Spirit. There are certain laws that if you fulfill them, you'll have greater access to God the Holy Spirit. Okay, does that make sense? So examples in 1 Corinthians, if you go back and read the letter, are the foods you eat. Are they sacrificed to idols? Or were, were they not sacrificed to idols at some point? And they'll say like, oh, you should, you should not eat from these because they were once sacrificed from idols. So if you eat, to them, eat of them, it gives you less of God. Another law was the leader you followed. The type of leader. Some said Paul, some said Apollos. All right? And based on who you followed, would you get more of the Holy Spirit, more of the experience of God? Paul tries to squash that idea. And of course, here we see another law, and that law is celibacy, your sexual lifestyle. The idea here that people are promulgating is that celibacy, the ongoing refraining from sex, and the removal of the desire for it, is one of these laws. If you stop having sex, you will experience more of God. Stop finding your pleasure in another person, you'll get more of your pleasure satisfied in the Holy Spirit. Okay, What's ironic is that those submitting to this law, Corinthians buy into it, so those submitting to this law indulge wildly in sexual perversion. Wildly. So they say, yes, this is a great law, let's stick to it. And what do they do then? You read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. It's the introduction to Corinthians gone wild. All right, it's the premiere. All right, it's, it's crazy. 
And why is that? Because the law is a temptress. Sin uses the law to tempt us. So remember when you were a kid and you saw a no trespassing sign? How did you translate that as a kid? It was like, yeah, I dare you to stay away. Are you saw a no trespassing sign? At least for me, as a young boy, I was like, oh, wait a minute. What are they keeping me from? It's got to be good. It's got to be interesting. It's got to be adventurous. So that is why we hear in the New Testament trespassing of a law. Right? Because it, it is, when you have a law, you will break it. So the dilemma for Paul is he sees clear benefits to leading a celibate life, just as he does. He's living a celibate life, refraining from, from uh, sexual desire, sexual indulgence. Yet, he wishes to lend no credence to a false law which states that a celibate life will magically somehow open up the supercharged access to the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, good to lead a celibate life. I, mean, I want to I encourage that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to say it should be a law in your life. Because that's where legalism comes into play. That's where you try to please God through what you do, and you think that's going to get you more of an experience of God. And it doesn't. It doesn't. This helps us understand the otherwise strange opening to each of our passages we read here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. It's a concession. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, or that was kind of the ancient version of engagement with a few different asterisks next to it. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment, listen to how he puts it, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul would do anything rather than erect a law where God gives none. And so violate freedom. He does not want to violate the believer's freedom to love God. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So how does he solve this dilemma? He wishes to, A, take the tone of mercy. While, while this passage is complicated and it's a little bit complex, we'll get through that, the tone of it is merciful. And so he also argues from the point of view of mercy as opposed to apostolic authority. He's an apostle gifted by God to to write the inspired word of God and to issue commands, but he doesn't want to overuse that, overplay that. That doesn't mean this is not the inspired word of God. doesn't mean this is not incredible counsel that we do well to listen to. It absolutely is. But it's just a little less fiery which is indicative of apostolic commands, and a little more fireside chat, (laughs) which is indicative of pastoral love. That's the tone here. Paul gets pastoral. I've earned your trust only because you've seen Jesus at work in me and through me. You've seen his mercy in my life. It's not because of me. It's because of him. He wants to show that mercy as a way of drawing them, as a way of encouraging them. Which makes sense, right? To, to accept the wisdom of biblical counsel, of apostolic counsel, we have to trust that such hard-to-accept counsel springs from God wanting his best for us. You have to know when you hear something hard, right? When you hear something difficult, this person wants the best for me. And then and only then can I really listen to it. And that is expressed definitively through the gospel of Jesus, right? The cross shows us that God wants his best for us. So much so that he sacrificed his only son on our behalf. That is always a definitive sign 
Yes. The definitive remembering, yes, God wants His best for us. And that is explained in the apostolic teaching in the rest of the New Testament through Paul. as He explains the outworking of the Gospel. Believing all the while the person who wrote this and even the pastor now preaching before you wants the best for you. And I know that I do. And you can just go through this passage, circle all the grace words. Maybe you can even do that now if you have a little pen with you. Circle all the grace words in your Bible. Paul uses words like good, as in good for you. I want what's good for you in verses 8, verses 26. Circle that good. For your own benefit, verse 35, reminding us that because of Jesus, God is for us. Everything is for our benefit. Verse 32, I want you to be free from, just as Jesus freed us from bondage. Paul says, I want to spare you in verse 28, just as God spared us from eternity apart from Him through Christ. See, so so Paul is connecting his counsel back to the the decisive good for us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Constantly taking what's for our good and the counsel and the wisdom He wants to give us back to the cross, back to the Gospel. That's so important to see here. Like Paul, guys, I want to spare you, my my friends and true family, from hyped, semi-magical, next-level Christianity that the pneumatics proclaim, whose motto is, some Christians, yeah, experience some good, but I know a way you can experience more of God. That's what some teachers do. And it is false. You should always have your antenna up for this. So, while others are tempting God's people through, hey, do this law, do this law, you get more of God. Paul hints out grace flowing from Jesus, through Him, and for you. It is for your good. So first, we see this, that that we need grace for this hard counsel. Remember the cross, this is because it flows from Jesus' life that is explained by Paul and is worked out in this good counsel. It all springs from the cross. And then it gets kind of hard. But there's still more grace because singleness also has its benefits. This is the second part here. Singleness has its grace to it, including the fact that singleness is a gift. Number one, it's a calling and it's purposeful. It's a gift, it's a calling, and it's purposeful. So firstly, singleness is a gift. It may not always feel like it. Nobody one day sort of opened the gifts in Christmas. We're like, oh, great. A life of singleness with celibacy. Just what I wanted. But it is. That that, that is a worldly way of thinking. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. And the question here, is Paul talking about singleness or celibacy? Is the gift Paul is speaking of here be relationally single, which is a broader category, or to be sexually celibate, which is kind of a narrower category within singleness. And I believe the gift he's speaking of here is celibacy specifically. So I have to apologize. Last week I said it was singleness specifically. Having studied the passage more carefully, I really believe it is celibacy. Because the context of 1 Corinthians 7, which is sexual intimacy, argues strongly for celibacy. The pneumatics were pushing for celibacy not only in general, but check this out, also for people who are married. They were saying, not only should you guys abstain from sex, you know, for those of you who are single, 
for those of you who are married, just to be safe, you better stay away from it. And so Paul spends verses 1 through 5, if you go back and read those verses, saying, uh-uh, no dice. Spouses refraining from sex should only be rare. It should be only occasional and then only for prayer and then very briefly. So he goes on to say, refraining from sex. Now that is a gift. And those gifted with that, with celibacy, are called to singleness. The gift empowers the calling. The two are very much intertwined. So you'll hear me go back and forth a little bit here in the next few minutes. The, the gift empowers the calling. And because both are gifts, here's an important application. The lack, because both are gifts with a lack of desire for sexual expression. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that you're weird. Can I just stop and say that for a moment? Some of us feel like, and maybe even feel like this now, like that because you don't have this strong desire that you see other people carry with them. You hear other people talk of and kind of joke about. And when they joke about it, you kind of blush and you're like, man, I just feel kind of different. I don't have that same desire. Have you ever considered that might be a very gift from God? Be encouraged by that. It's not that you're weird. It's that you're gifted. And that should be encouraging. And that has application because, because both are gifts, lack of desire for sexual expression, and an outlet for expression through marriage, those called to one have no right to look down upon the other. Yet, those who are married often size up singles like they have a missing appendage to their body. Right? They, 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 they greet them, you know, oh, you, are you married? They say no, and you're like, uh. like there's some kind of alien sometimes. What is that? Or they walk into the group and they don't even think about saying things. Like we were talking the other night. Uh, some people were helping me move it. And we were talking about doing an icebreaker one time that involves bringing a, a picture of our wedding ceremony. Each person bring a picture of wedding ceremony. And there's one of my single friends that immediately, thankfully I was preaching on this passage, immediately thought, oh, it, or just any picture will do <laughs> for you. And we, like, he's a good friend, so we laughed about it. It was great. But, but again, you make these phrases, you have these things you want to do together, but you treat a single person like second-class Christians, those of us who are married. Likewise, singles size up married couples, and especially married parents, as if they've lost their freedom. They're no longer capable of fun. Outside of Disney and maybe Chuck E. Cheese, like they can't have fun anymore. But they actually, they've lost their individual personalities. The only way they show themselves anymore is as a puppet for their children. And yet, let me tell you guys, I feel so encouraged when single folks ask me out to do something with them. Yes, 5% of the time, I can actually go with them. You know, I mean, that's true. I'm going to agree with that. But let me tell you, don't take that as a rejection. Take that as a gift to me. You just gave me a gift. Unconditional, because I wasn't able to pay back by my presence. People with family. Invite us. And similarly, Mary, invite single folks. Yeah, they, you, you might think they're going to feel awkward. How much does it mean to be invited, to be encouraged, to be sought out? Even Paul, in one sense, tends towards this. He says in verse 7, I wish, I wish that all were as I myself am. Who is he? Gifted with celibacy as a single man, called to be single. We all wish people were like ourselves. Initially, it's easier to relate. But through Christ, we're family. So one is a spirit-empowered gift from God. The other is at least a gift. So we should view it as that. This is right for me. That is right for them. 
under God's sovereignty and as He's chosen to distribute gifts. So we should encourage each other in that. So first, it's a gift. Secondly, singleness is beneficial because it's a calling. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. Underline that word remain. Because this is a very important word in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, a major, if not the major theme of 1 Corinthians is to remain in what I call, what theologians call your secondary calling. When God has primarily called you to a relationship with him through Jesus, remain in your secondary call, which most people think of as their job or the place they live or the season of life they are in. One reason is because every person's time is short, especially those without the gospel. And this passage speaks to that as well. Time is short. This world is passing away. If you read, go back and read verses 17 through 24 of 1 Corinthians 7, this is the only teaching on Scripture that addresses the matter of vocational calling or secondary calling. So it's very interesting. I've preached on this before. But because we're called to remain, and the context is calling, this means in the same way people speak of missionary, a a, a sacrificial musician, a, a nurse, a teacher, a social worker, in terms of calling, so also is singleness. That's the context here, guys. To remain in that calling until God calls you out. Missionary, teacher, pastor, nurse, doctor, you know, firemen, policemen, all those things people think of as noble and heroic, so is singleness. It provides opportunities for purposefulness in a way that no other calling does. It is noble, as we'll see momentarily. Those called to singleness are usually gifted with celibacy. As a divine help to them, they're gifted with a removal of that desire for sexual fulfillment. Now, some of you, when I say that, think, man, dude, you are crazy. I'm single. I'm single. And, you know, if celibacy is removal of sexual desire, like, that ain't happening. Right? I I, I still got the itch, whether it's through a rom-com movie with Ryan Reynolds or it's, you know, the girl I met last night at the wharf. Like, I had something was happening there. Like, like, don't, you know, say that God's given me that gift. Let me ask you. If you're not gifted, have you asked? Have you asked the Father of all good gifts? Let me read this with you, another part in the New Testament. This is from James, who's the brother of Jesus. James 4, verses 2 through 6. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend what? On your passions. You adulterous people, he's looking, speaking in sexual language here, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose this to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. In other words, he wants to be with us. He wants to love us in a committed monogamous relationship. But he gives more grace. Let me break down for you why this ought to be the life verses of some of us who are single, especially those who have yet to experience the gift of celibacy, who are still aflame with sexual desire. Let me, first of all, the prayer. Is, is there any less wrong ask of God 
Any less selfish ask of God to, to redirect passion away from spending it on my sexual satisfaction and towards friendship with God? Is there any less wrong ask asking for the gift of celibacy? Because it's going to help you find your satisfaction in the bridegroom of heaven, not in a person. Absolutely, it, it, is, it is unselfish, which is exactly what James is speaking to. This passage also recognizes the reality that friendship with God is, is in conflict with friendship towards the world. A world that is saturated with what? Maybe even defined by what? Sexual desire. It teems in the 21st century world we live in. And yet God would give a gift to help single people with that. God jealously wants you, so you are promised what? More grace, so you ask. So you have the prayer, you have the truth that God wants to be with you, and he, and he had this promise, I want to give you more grace. You who are in battle, you who are trying to stay faithful to God, but you still have this yearning. There is more grace. And we find out in 1 Corinthians 7, a major form of that grace is this gift from God of celibacy. Ask for it. And you might say, man, you got to understand, Ryan, asking for celibacy, man, that's humbling. Even, even just saying it privately, not before anybody else, which would be more humbling, even better. The rest of verse 6. Look at the rest of verse 6. James chapter 4 says, Therefore it says, the Bible, according to the Old Testament, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Coming before God, humbly say, God, I'm having a hard time here. Whether it's my loneliness, but especially my sexual desire, I need help. Do you not think the giver of all good gifts wants to give you that gift? Have you asked? Any person who's currently called to be single should ask for the gift of celibacy. And let me tell you, I know that's scary because it feels like you're half asking to be cursed, aren't you? Because what if God gives you that gift? Oh my gosh, that's it. My life as a nun or as a monk. But it's not that. It's God's sufficient help for now. Like all spiritual gifts. That's not necessarily forever. Some gifts are for the season you're in. That's what the New Testament and Paul teach. This is God's sufficient help for now, not necessarily forever. So ask. Finally, it's purposeful. Read with me verses 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So his interests are divided. The unmarried man or betrothed, sorry, unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious how, about worldly things. How should I please my husband? And these sorts of things. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you. That's what the pneumatics did, the lawgivers. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion for the Lord. I want the best for you, he reminds them again. So first of all, this, this gift which empowers this calling is purposeful. Okay? A, it secures your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, there might be a cultural difference that might immediately cause friction when you just heard this passage. And I want to acknowledge that difference, that friction is real. Aside from the occasional merchant or seafarer, the first century job that you had and the place you lived as a 12-year-old was lifelong in the Mediterranean first century, okay? It was lifelong. You're a fig farmer, you're probably going to be a fig farmer. You, you know, cull wheat in, in Bethany? 
You're probably going to be doing that for the rest of your life in Bethany. But those who are single now are more mobile, with more options, more places. There's more fish in the proverbial sea versus the proverbial pond. That's why nobody calls it the proverbial pond, because we are so mobile. They may, but the first century, they probably did. Go out to the proverbial pond. Find a good woman. Right? There's like two people. All right? That's what you did. But now it's, it's a sea, isn't it? I realized this this week when mentioning these verses of 1 Corinthians 7 to singles who feel like their experience is the opposite of undivided interest. Who feel like they're more anxious. They're always thinking about the opposite gender. And if, and then if, then yes. And sorry, if yes, then whom? And if whom, then how? If not in the local church, then how legitimate is Tinder? Right? How, how legitimate is flipping through people's faces on the phone saying, yes, yes, maybe, maybe, no, 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 no. How legitimate is that? And then, should I move back from whence I came from Grand Cayman? Since I can't find anyone here. Should I move back? Yes, it, this is an obstacle. I get that. But staying single is also an opportunity. Uh, ethicist and theologian Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University points out Christianity is the first religion and worldview that upheld the call of singleness as a viable way of life. So it was radical in this way. Christianity said you could be single, be gifted, be called, and be purposeful. Listen to what he says. We must remember that the sacrifice made by singles was not just in giving up sex, but in giving up heirs. Right? People who inherit land, money, title, name. There could be no more radical act than that. This was a clear expression that one's future is not guaranteed by the family, but by the church of Christ. See that? In other words, what an incredible opportunity to display faith to say, you know what? I'm going to live my life. I don't need to have children fulfill me. I don't, I don't need to be married to fulfill me. I can show that being single, I can produce much fruit, even make spiritual disciples, spiritual sons and daughters through my life. There are two single people in the church who immediately came to mind this past week as I meditated on this, who who aren't wasting their time with Tinder or moving back somewhere to find that special someone. They're giving themselves wholly to the people of God. When they're not with the people of God, what are they doing? They're on mission for God with the gospel. That is their life. In fact, their kingdom effectiveness is so evident that sometimes I think to myself, man, they are perfect for each other. But then there I go again, right? Thinking like a spouse. It's like, wait a minute, what? Oh, whoa. Does this really mean they're called to be married? Right? Because each calling is valuable. Each gift is so good. So it's purposeful in that it secures your undivided devotion. It also promotes good order. And by good order, I think Paul means here for good order for the church. Those who are married spend time working on their marriage, sacrificing for their spouse, or feeling guilty for not sacrificing for their spouse. Right? Laboring through peacemaking. Because as I mentioned last week, when two sinners get married, war is always near. And when two domestic powers come together to work on a peace agreement, it's complicated and time-consuming. In addition to all that, we're trying to do the same disciplines and establish the same spiritual rhythms of our life to connect with God as you singles are. We are very much distracted. You have an opportunity to bring order to a church, to bring stability as a single person. Now listen, I'm not sure how many of you are big fans of Tobey Maguire and the Spider-Man movies. Batman Trilogy? How many of you guys loved that movie? Or moderately liked it? Okay. More Green Lantern fans, I guess. Uh, that kind of thing. That's fine. That's fine. A- after the first Spider-Man movie, 
in which Peter Parker follows the, the typical superhero plot of normal to super to love to sacrifice to conquest, right? The second movie opens with him withdrawing as he tries to live a normal life, a life for himself. This is art imitating life. He loses his job. He goes into debt. He slacks on his studies. He nearly neglects, you know, visiting his best gal's Broadway play. When finally a nine-year-old neighbor basically reminds him of what his dying uncle told him, with great power comes what? Say it with me. Great responsibility. Man, you know they stole that line, but that's okay. Great power comes great responsibility. So he shakes out of his one-year private retreat, and he rescues New York City from a robot with eight arms. All right, and that's the end of that illustration. As a single person, it's often easiest to retreat, to fade to your background, to withdraw. But you've been given, or will soon be asking, I hope, for a supernatural gift to empower you for a calling to fulfill a purpose. And with that becomes responsibility. The ability to give a noble response to the gift given to you, to a noble calling, to a noble purpose to your life graciously given to you. Your gift, your calling, your purpose can be wasted. But I want to implore you, don't waste your life. You should be volunteering regularly in children's ministry. Not because we who are married with kids think you have less to do or we take you for granted, but because we are distracted and anxious about worldly things. Like Paul says. We need your help to regain our focus on Sunday mornings, to be together as married couples to focus. We need to be at peace in our relationships. We need your help to share the load. We need you to be part of our family's lives. Because we are called to show the gospel through our marriage. That's our calling. We need you to be a true auntie or uncle so that we can take time to work on that marriage and might glorify God. You can be leading missions. You can be leading prayer ministries and mercy ministries. You can be the persons of depth that our church needs, the prophets and the sages of God's church. Man, yes, learn from those of us who have been sanctified first through marriage and then through kids because they require a lot of self-sacrifice. Be around them, emulate their character, and then outpace us through your time in your devotion, and with your life. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you would give some of us a gift. A gift like celibacy. An otherworldly, sometimes frowned upon, but in your eyes, beautiful, godly, supernatural gift. I pray this that those who don't experience that lack of desire for sexual fulfillment would pray for it, would ask the giver of good gifts for it. And I trust that you want to give that to my friends this morning who are single. And Father, I pray that it would, it would help them live out this noble calling and this divine purpose to invest themselves devoted to kingdom effectiveness and to the King of Kings. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And for my good friends, good. Amen.